This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are doing the fourth installment on my series on the TV series, You. I'm going to throw up a massive spoiler alert because this series only, or this season only came out a few weeks ago, so, or a few months ago, so if you haven't watched it, don't listen to this if you don't want to be spoiled. And I'm going to be talking about everything, including the ending, so spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Also, uh, some content warning, as I may be talking about uh, content, content around suicidality. Um, So if that is something that is upsetting to you, just know that that is coming up in the episode as well. And if you haven't listened to my three other episodes on you, each episode is on one of the seasons. You can go back and listen to those through my catalog and catch up before you hear me talk about season four. So just to kick off this episode, I wanted to say that I really loved season four. I was really impressed with the direction that it went in. It seemed like it was going to be really hard to top season three because it ended with really the ultimate battle between Love and Joe, where unfortunately Joe won the battle and was kind of the survivor of their relationship. So I was, you know, a little apprehensive about where season four was going to go. I thought it went in an interesting direction, having the object of Joe's obsession being a man in this season also was very interesting. It mixed it up a little bit. Of course, there was still the obsession with a woman, multiple women. So it's the same old uh, Joe Goldberg that we know, but it was interesting to have him kind of be referring to the you character, referring to like this, this man, the character of, of Reese. Um, if you were watching along as the episodes came out, they split them in half. So like the first few episodes came out and then a week later, the rest of the episodes came out. And I liked where they split them because the first few episodes, they're a little dry. They're a little eh, less true to form of you because Joe is trying to not be the monster that he normally is. He's trying to like you know, protect people. And he's actually trying to like, quote unquote, catch the killer. And so in the first few episodes, it's really more of like a whodunit where Joe is kind of positioned as one might say a hero. And then the second half really reveals like, no, Joe's just being Joe. (laughs) He's been himself the whole time. He has been doing the murders. um, And he is really locked into quite a downward spiral in terms of his mental health. So that is where I think I can come in and and talk a little bit about some of the mental health things that I saw was going on in season four. So I'm going to talk about two main things, uh, DID or Dissociative Identity Disorder. Um, And I'm going to talk more about erotomania or erotomanic delusions because that comes up 
with Joe across pretty much every season of You. Um, but there also was another character in season four that represented this type of delusional content that I thought was interesting to contrast with Joe. So I'm going to talk about those two like diagnosable conditions and then I'm going to talk about a pretty interesting article I was reading in Scientific American about the relationship between wealth and empathy because that is a big theme in season four. So I'll get more into that um, but let's go ahead and jump right in talking about DID. So disassociative identity disorder is what we now call a condition that used to be called multiple personality disorder. It has been present in the last two iterations of the DSM, the DSM-5 and the text revised version. Over other versions of the DSM, it's been kicked around as potentially a personality disorder. Now it is considered a uh, disorder of disassociation. So the idea is that a person experiencing DID is experiencing a very specific type of disassociation. I think that Joe Goldberg in season four of You is one of the most accurate depictions of DID that I've ever seen in media. Most media depictions of DID or multiple personality disorder are things like the movie Split, where it's someone who has like 50 personalities and they're all like really distinct and they dress differently and they have different voices and it's like all these like very unique personality states within the same person. DID in the real world is not always that like clear cut and it's really difficult to diagnose because one of the biggest functions of DID is this disassociative state and for those of you who have never disassociated before, we don't really remember what happens to us when we are disassociated, particularly in the deep level of disassociation that one would be in if they're experiencing DID. A common form of disassociation that most of us experience are if you've ever been driving home from work or driving home from a very common route and your mind starts to wander and then all of a sudden you realize you're like two blocks from your house and it's been five minutes and you don't really remember what you're doing. <laughs> That's a form of disassociation. It's a more normative form. It's It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you if you have that, but I think it's a good way to kind of anchor this conversation so that you know kind of the flavor of what disassociation is. It's it's hard to like have awareness of what's going on when one is disassociated, just like if you've ever had that experience of driving home and you don't remember what happened during those like few moments when you were disassociated. You may feel like it was much longer than it actually was. You won't have any memories from those time. So that's that kind of like core experience is what's happening in DAD. It's just that for someone with DAD, the disassociation is presenting as these different personality states. So the first criteria for DAD is a disruption of identity that is characterized by two or more distinct personality states, which may to some, in some cultures, be described as a feeling um, as possession. So there's actually two types of DAD. There's possession form DAD and non-possession form. In possession form, um, people feel like an external force has come in and is in charge of the personality state. Non-possession form does not feel that way. And I'm going to talk about that more, but those are the two kind of types of DAD that we have listed in the DSM. So in Joe's case, the two distinct personality states are one, there's Jonathan, which is the name that 
Joe has been using to start his new life in England. And Jonathan becomes like its own distinct personality state in in this character because we know that Jonathan is very different than Joe Goldberg, although us as the audience know that Joe and Jonathan are the same person. There is this kind of like separation and Jonathan really becomes the kind of representation of all the ways that Joe Goldberg thinks he's a good person, right? Jonathan is an English professor. He is, you know, smart and witty, but very respectful and like demure. He has a very powerful connection with Kate, the woman of his affections. He is uh, really close with one of Kate's friends, Phoebe. Like Jonathan is essentially like your mild mannered professor kind of stereotype. And really, if, if you kind of track through all of the seasons of you, Jonathan is who Joe Goldberg would want to be if he wasn't Joe Goldberg. <laughs> like, if you could have Joe Goldberg exist in a world where he didn't experience childhood trauma, he didn't have his, like, obsessive qualities and his erotomania, Jonathan would be who Goldberg would be or, or you know, kind of characterize himself as. So, I really see Jonathan as a distinct personality state from Joe Goldberg. So we have Jonathan. The other one that comes into play in season four is this part of Joe that he represents as Reese. And Reese is, this is where it gets confusing because Reese is actually a character in season four, right? He's part of the friend group that Joe joins and he's like running for mayor. And at the end of the season, you realize that Joe has actually never met Reese or has met him only briefly, even though throughout the show we're shown that Joe and Reese have many interactions and Reese is eventually revealed to be like the, the, the killer that Joe is allegedly trying to hunt down. But the double whammy reveal is that Reese is, or the version of Reese that Joe has been interacting with is not real, is part of Joe's own mind. And he has like split off the part of himself that enjoys killing into this personality state of Reese, which he experiences kind of like as a hallucination. So in that sense, it's not like true DID because um, Joe doesn't experience it as disassociation. Like he experiences himself as talking to Reese, but he also doesn't remember all the things that he does when he is like allowing that part of his personality to take over. So that's why I actually think it's a good representation representation of DID in media because it's so messy. And at least in my experience, the clinical presentation of DID can be very, you know, quote unquote messy. Like it can be hard to get to the bottom of because if someone is disassociating to the point where there's this like distinct personality state that may take over and results in a like disruption to one's own sense of self, yeah, it's really hard to just, like, tell your therapist that that's what's going on, right? Like, you may not even know that it's going on. The person with DID may not know that what it's going on. Um, it may be, like, observable in other people, but sometimes it presents as other things like, you know, hallucinations, delusions. Like, people may not really understand what's going on. So DID is a really tricky disorder. It's really controversial because of that. There are professionals who will say they don't think it exists. There are researchers that say they don't think it exists. It's in the DSM. There is some literature I've read that seems to back up 
some type of of evidence that this disorder exists but it's really controversial so i thought that the way that they portrayed joe having these kind of like personality splits is a lot closer to what we might see in did cases and especially the part where like joe does not realize that these are this person is a part of him that reese was really him the whole time so those are kind of how I see them, I see them as like three distinct personality states. There's Reese, who is like the killer side, the part of Joe that really does like to kill, likes to hunt women, and sees the world as very black and white. Either you do something wrong and should be killed, or you do something right and you <laughs> aren't killed. Jonathan is the part of Joe that literally just wants to be a mild-mannered professor, wants to have like a sense of normal in his life, wants to settle down with someone, just is mild-mannered. And then Joe is really the bridge between the two. And he has elements of both Reese and Jonathan within him. But Joe Goldberg, the identity, is not really active for much of season four. We really are interacting with Jonathan and Reese. So let's go through what else can happen or what other symptoms of DID there are that I think showed up in the show. So first we have this disruption of identity with two or more distinct personality states. I think we have that with Joe, Reese, and Jonathan. The next one is recurrent gaps in the recall of everyday events, important personal information, and or traumatic events that are inconsistent with ordinary forgetting. So this is not just someone who it, we all forget, right? You may forget what you had for breakfast today. You may forget what a friend said to you three weeks ago at happy hour. You may forget what happened on your sixth birthday party, right? Like we, we forget things. Our memory is not the best <laughs> and ordinary forgetting is something that most people experience. In the case of DID, we're looking for a pattern of gaps in the memory loss. So that's what they're talking about, like kind of recurrent gaps. So not just like, oh, I have trouble remembering what happened to me when I was a kid, but like it keeps coming up and there's a consistency to it. Maybe it's, you know, with some regularity throughout the week or month. Maybe it's after multiple different types of traumatic or stressful events, but some type of reoccurring gap in the memory. And then they break it down into three different types. So you don't have to have all three to meet the criteria for DID, but we're looking for at least one of these types of memory. And the DSM breaks it down more into... Um, like loss or discovery of possessions, lapses of recent memory, so things that like are just happening, that would be more like the everyday event, and then autobiographical memory. So autobiographical memories are usually things from uh, that are in our long-term memory, they're, they're long ago, and they are part of kind of like the, the memory or story that we have about ourselves. So the memory of like what happened to you on your birthday might be part of your autobiographical memory, whereas your memory about breakfast is more of your like recent memory because it, it just happened. So those are kind of the, the ways in which the DSM says we can look for these things. So in terms of discovery of possessions, uh, unfortunately for Joe, this manifests often as waking up and finding a body. <laughs> the show starts off with Joe having gone out to a party with his new high society friends he wakes up the next morning to his fellow professor Malcolm murdered on the kitchen table with a knife stabbed in him and missing a finger. 
Joe has no memory of this happening and he doesn't remember if he killed him or what happened. And in typical Joe fashion, he takes care of the body. Now, this is an extreme example, but this kind of experience of like waking up or, you know, coming back into the self and then finding things that maybe don't belong to the, you know, other personality states or finding things that, you know, you don't remember is one of the ways in which DID could present. So, you know, and other examples that aren't bodies, like maybe waking up and finding like a bunch of new clothes in the closet that you would never wear or never buy for yourself, or waking up and finding like sets of keys to things that you don't know that, that you don't know what they open. And because we're looking at these like distinct personality states, these possessions are, would be tied to those personality states. So they would be distinct from what I keep saying you, but like kind of like the the main personality, like what the main personality would be drawn to. So that's discovery of possessions. Next is lapses of recent memory. The way that I think this represents for Joe is that he, well, first of all, doesn't remember that he did any of the murders. So we find out at the end of the show that at every time where we saw Joe fall asleep or nod off, that that was actually when his other personality state, his Reese personality state was taking over and he was going to go do the murders. But because he didn't, was not aware of those, he experienced it as just like falling asleep and then waking up and there was a new murder that had happened. He also has a lot of trouble remembering things that like he said to Phoebe on the first night that becomes a theme for the season is like everybody wants to know what he said to her about true love. And, you know, I know that's not a great example because he had been drinking really heavily that night, but the lapses in the murders, I think, are the best example of these are things that had happened recently and he can't remember the events of them. And it includes not just the murder, but like the escaping from the scene, cleaning up, throwing away the weapons, all that, that sort of stuff. It's not like he would come to mid stabbing someone and be like, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm the murderer. It's like, his personality state would take over for the entire process all the way through like cleaning up and kind of putting things away. So that's lapses of recent memory. The autobiographical part is that most, I think is best represented by the fact that we find out at the end of the season that Joe had actually kidnapped Marianne at the beginning. So at the beginning of the season, if you don't remember, he, we, we, we find out that Joe had tracked Marianne to Europe, had had this encounter with her where she was very afraid of him, told him that, like, you can't kill me because I have to get back to my daughter. And Joe seemingly lets her go, realizing that she's no longer in love with him. However, this is one of the the parts of his memory that has been kind of blocked off because of the the new personality state. He didn't let her go. He actually drugged her coffee captured her and built a cage for her because there's always a cage and kept her in this like abandoned building in the cage where until he could figure out what he wanted to do with her. And so in this process of him capturing Marianne, which so Jonathan, the Jonathan personality has no idea that Marianne has been kidnapped. He thinks that Marianne is alive and that she's thriving in France and that he did a good thing because He let her go and he's broken his pattern. He doesn't kill every woman that he falls in love with. So the Jonathan part of him has no idea. The Reese part of him 
knows exactly where Marianne is and is aware of where she is and thinks that she should be killed because that's the that part of him is the part that <laughs> kills. And we find out through kind of hearing Marianne's story that when Joe had first captured her, he became really obsessed with the actual character of Reese, reading his memoir, listening to his podcasts, just like finding everything out about him. And through that process, his like obsession with Reese came the kind of splitting off. He over-identified with the actual person of Reese. He saw him as someone who had a poor upbringing, you know, had a very difficult upbringing like Joe did, was a successful writer, like the kind of public persona of Reese, Joe over-identified with, which I think is the mechanism through which Reese became the personality. And Joe, who clearly has been decompensating for three seasons, right, from killing Beck to being, I mean, I think love psychologically tortured him, which to be fair, maybe he deserved, (laughs) but through his relationship with love, he's been like slipping away and, or I guess his, I guess his grasp on reality has been loosening is what I would say. And then the experience with Marianne, I think pushed him over the edge to the point where to kind of protect himself mentally, he has created these two personality states. And that's often in the literature, what I've read about the kind of explanation for how DID develops is there's this some sort of mechanism in the brain that says like, okay, we need a timeout. We need to take a break from this. We're going to let this personality be in charge of this thing. And then other personality over here, you don't have to know about it. So Reese kind of takes on all of the stress and emotions and trouble and all of that stuff about the murdering and just becomes the part of him that We'll do the murdering. We'll do the capturing. We'll do the the violent and aggressive stuff. Jonathan doesn't have to deal with that. He gets to have his quote unquote normal life. He gets his fresh start. He doesn't even have to deal with like the the trauma of killing love and leaving his son behind. Right. That that all of that gets transferred to Reese. So all that to say. Now Joe has this lapse in his autobiographical memory because he doesn't remember like all of this past stuff with Marianne. He doesn't remember the interaction with her or he remembers up to a point. He doesn't remember then him kidnapping her. He doesn't remember where she's located, all of this stuff. And from the show, like we we realize that she's been in this cage for quite a while. So that's why I think it's different than the lapses of recent memory because he's had her in the cage for... I want to say something like six or eight months, like quite a while. So all of those are symptoms of this kind of recent recurrent gaps in in memory. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't think that people who have DID murder. (laughs) This is a Joe Goldberg issue. And just because someone may experience disassociation to the point where they don't have recall of certain memories doesn't mean that in those memory lapses are crimes, right? Like lots of people experience disassociation. There's another disorder called disassociative amnesia. Lots like it's, it's common enough that we have diagnoses for it. It happens a lot around trauma where people don't have the memory of actually what happened to them. They don't have the memory of after the trauma or they have some lapses in memory since the trauma. Does not mean that then you do violent things in those lapses. That is where I think this representation of DID for me gets a little dicey in that, you know, because it's Joe in those memory lapses, he's doing crimes and, and doing murders. 
usually this is the way that DID does show up in media. I remember the first time that I saw a representation of it was actually when I watched an episode of Criminal Minds where they were so confused because, you know, the unsub had all these signals that it was a woman, but they kept finding, like, male DNA at the murder scenes, and it turned out it was someone who had DID, and one of those personality states was a woman who would, like, get upset, and then the man personality would come up and do the murdering, right? So in the lapses of memory was these murders. That's, like, I think that just is one of the ways in which DID, DID gets shown in media because it's it can be seen as, like, an interesting motivation or interesting reason why someone might do a heinous crime like a murder and then how they deal with it or how they move through the world without having to deal with the memories. And again, that's not the case in DID. That's not the like expectation that if someone is diagnosed with DID that we have to be ready that they're going to do murders. Like this is just the kind of sensationalized version of DID. So I do want to say that um, just, you know, to be clear, but I will say again, because of the complexity of it, and the way in which Joe interacts with the part of himself, with, with Reese, I think that it just shows a, a different way, a less intense way. Because nobody really ever sees Joe being Reese. Like, it's it's usually during times when he's by himself or when he's interacting with Reese. It's like when they're at parties and people think he's just, like, drunk and being kind of silly. So it's it's interesting that it's, like, very subtle. I think that's the word I'm looking for. It's a very subtle representation. Um, so the rest of the things that we're looking for to diagnose DID is one, that they the symptoms need to cause some type of distress or impairment in the person's life. So I would say for Joe, he has quite a bit of distress because people are being murdered <laughs> and it does impair his functioning, at least in the social circle and at his job, because he's like trying to keep all these pieces together and as we get later into the season the pieces start to unravel and he he has more and more trouble kind of knowing what's going on then this other part is we want to make sure that the disturbance in identity is not part of a broadly accepted cultural or religious practice so for instance if joe were from a culture where engaging in something like hallucinogens and then inviting possession in that's part of like their normal cultural or religious practices, then he probably wouldn't meet criteria for DAD because it's something that's expected of his culture. Now, we know that that's not what's going on with Joe. There's not anything that's happening where his identity state of Reese or Jonathan is like expected to be happening. So he can still meet criteria for DAD. Um, If you're People can diagnose DAD in children. So if you're diagnosing DAD in children, um, you basically really need to rule out that it's not like imaginary friends or fantasy play. So I think it's best to be very, very careful. I, you know, we're not diagnosing anybody here, but, but it can be diagnosed in children. It's just that it really needs to be ruled out that like this child doesn't just have a very vivid imagination and the personality states aren't like, just like imaginary friends. And then you also want to make sure that the the kind of memory recall issues are not due to substance use or medical conditions. So in the beginning, we see Joe have trouble remembering the like very first episode he has trouble remembering because he was very drunk the night before. 
So in that case, we would say, well, his memory lapse is very much due to the alcohol intoxication. However, as the series goes on, we realize, oh, he's having these episodes even when he's sober or, you know, not as heavily intoxicated. And we know he's not taking any, like, medication at the time. There are some uh, conditions like certain types of seizure disorders or neurological conditions where the identity states or memory lapse could be due to that. No evidence that I can see that Joe has any of those, so I think we're good to go with saying he probably would meet criteria for a disorder like this. Now, like I mentioned, there are the two forms, the possession form and the non-possession form. Um, People who have the non-possession form of DID typically don't display uh, their discontinuity of identity. So it's not a very overt shift um, between the personality states in the non-possession form. So that's why I think with Joe, it's such a great example because... It's not like this whole body shudder and now a new personality state is here where you would observe it. It's very subtle. It's not really observable from the outside. We like as the audience don't even really observe it until it's revealed later on in the um, season. And so because in non-possession form, there's not this like overt display of the identity states, many of those people don't show up in therapy as meeting criteria for a DID because it's not like a, uh, like there's not people in their life going like, Hey, this, this thing is happening. I think you should get it checked out or they're not aware of it because it's such a subtle display that the person themselves may not be even aware of it. And again, with Joe, he like falls asleep or blacks out from drinking or something like that. And this Reese part of him kind of is in control. And it's him doing the behavior, but it's the I, the personality state of Reese. Um, again, people are typically not aware of the disruptions in their identity. There's a big crossover in DID with uh, childhood maltreatment. Some studies have demonstrated that 90% of people with DID had some form of childhood abuse, which we know from earlier seasons in You that Joe experienced a very violent and abusive childhood. Um, up until he was abandoned by his mother and then experienced a very abusive adolescence when he was taken in by the old man who owned the bookstore. So he definitely has that kind of background that would suggest he could develop something like DOD. There's also some evidence that there's a big crossover between, not a big crossover, but some crossover between DID and um, issues of attachment, issues of having dysfunctional or abusive relationships, which I think Joe has demonstrated, uh, crossover with obsessional personality traits, which I think I demonstrated in the previous seasons that Joe tends to have some pretty intense obsessions, um, and maybe even with narcissistic personality disorder, personality traits. And, you know, again, not to always just be diagnosing, but like Joe in the past has really had kind of this very self-centered or narcissistic view, like the way he looks at the women he pursues is that they should be so thankful to him for all the things that he does with them. So, you know, I think some of these crossover symptoms could possibly be going on with Joe as well. Um, DID itself, like the presentation of it, can be triggered by, um, like, stressors or later in life trauma. So if we're talking about this kind of, like, you know, 90% number of people who have had childhood trauma, 
their DID symptoms may not present right away after the childhood trauma. It may spark in adulthood or adolescence when another trauma, or even not necessarily a trauma, but just like enough stressors is on the person. Often the symptoms will then start to manifest then. With Joe, he kind of had like three trauma stressors back to back. So he kills love and burns down their house. He has to leave his son behind to, you know, flee the neighborhood after he kills love. And then as he perceives it, he lost Marianne because he, you know, she tells him that she's afraid of him. So kind of these things, boom, 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 back together, I think set up, at least in the world of the show, set up the kind of way in which Joe's symptoms for DID could have been triggered. So it's possible that like, if, I don't know, love had just been <laughs> like his wife and they were able to be together and not be murderers, that maybe he never would have experienced these symptoms. But the kind of intensity of season three and coming into season four is enough to trigger his symptoms. And interestingly enough, um, research has demonstrated that a greater severity of the disassociative symptoms, so the like more intense the memory loss is or the more distinct the personality states are. And this is across all disassociative uh, disorders, but in the case of DID, that's how they manifest. The greater severity of disassociation is associated with more suicide attempts. And in season four, in the uh, final episode, we see Joe deciding that he's going to attempt to kill himself to kind of end the cycle. And that is also an interesting uh, scene. So basically what happens is like Joe has figured out where Marianne is. He's figured out that he's split off this piece of himself into this Reese identity. And it's not the real Reese he's been interacting with, but a piece of his mind. He uh, tries to take care of Marianne through a very complicated turn of events. Marianne fakes her own death so that Joe will... Uh, leave her alone. <laughs> and he's like dismantled the cage. He's kind of taking care of everything, said goodbye to Kate, and he goes to the bridge. And the Reese part of himself is arguing with him, knows what he's going to try to do, and is like, no, like, don't kill yourself. We need to stay alive and keep killing because it's like so much fun. And in terms of DAD, often what we're trying to do in treatment is integrating the identity states. And this is a part where it seems that Joe's identity states are starting to integrate. Joe is aware that Jonathan and Reese are not fully himself. He, I mean, Jonathan w was kind of like a half-formed personality state, and he's kind of like flipped out of that. But he's like acknowledged that Reese is this part of himself. It is, you know, not the actual Reese. And he's starting to realize, like, I need to do something to kind of stop this cycle because even with the Marianne example, he thought he had broken his pattern with Marianne, but he had not. He had kidnapped her and put her in a cage once again, and he thinks that he has killed her because of, again, a series of events that I don't need to get into right now. Um, but Joe is now, as he's, he's starting to integrate these identities, become aware of what they've done, he decides that he's going to jump off the bridge and, and take his own life to kind of end the cycle. If you've seen it, obviously you know that didn't work. He did live and Kate realizes everything that he's done, that he's killed her father to free her from her own 
horrible storyline and they become this power couple. And one of the last scenes of the show is Joe looking into a window over New York City and we see Reese's reflection. So we know that Joe is still aware of that part of himself. He has not completely cut Reese out or integrated the identity. It's still with him and still a part of him that he is aware of. All that to say, I thought it was interesting from a like mental health perspective to show that like someone who's experiencing this level of disassociation then attempts suicide because we do see that in research or you know in like the literature that those are highly correlated and it's understandable disassociation is a really intense experience it can be very disorienting it can be very scary particularly if someone is disassociating for you know extended amounts of time and losing that memory and then in the case of DAD, like waking up to find a whole new wardrobe or, you know, a whole new kitchen set. And it's like, I, I don't remember buying this. I, don't, I feel very out of control. And those feelings of being very out of control can be, you know, big predictors for things like suicide attempts or self-harm. So from that perspective, I think it's really interesting to show someone who is clearly having, whether it's full DAD or just really intense disassociation, then seeing, okay, the only option I, I feel that I have for myself is to take my own life. Now, from a like, kind of like story perspective, feels like, wow, Joe, you're going to take the, you know, quote unquote, easy way out and not face any consequences for your actions except for, you know, ending your life. And then he doesn't even die and he actually gets a much better life at the end because Kate is going to, Kate vows to protect him and we're left to this assumption that season five is going to pick up with him being like, her special little boy who clearly is still going to keep murdering people (laughs) like that's that's very clear from Reese appearing in the window that like Joe is not done murdering so you know from a story side I think as an audience member I was like oh really that Joe's going to get this like this kind of a ending but from a mental health perspective and a representation I think it really shows that this type of disassociation can be so distressing that people experiencing it may be more likely to attempt to take their own lives or, or something like that. So overall, that's what I wanted to say about DID. That's the bulk of the episode because I think that it's just like the most clear and I really resonated with it when watching the episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about erotomania and then move into the money and empathy stuff. So erotomania, if you haven't listened to my other episodes, is a essentially category of delusions where the main content of the delusion is that the person experiencing it falsely believes that another person is in love with them. This can be a famous person, it can be a uh, like a boss or somebody at work that they don't know really well, it could be a stranger, like anyone, any, anyone <laughs> really, it could be anyone that the delusion is fixated on. Typically though, when we see a rhodomantic types of delusions, we see the object of the delusion is typically a person of higher status. So typically famous people, um, maybe like people at work who are like higher up than the uh, person with the delusion. Efforts to contact the object of the delusion are pretty common. And this could manifest like sending lots of fan mail to the person if they're a celebrity, you know, showing up at all of their events. In the case of Joe, it really manifests as, like, the stalking that he does and the way in which he 
uh, will like make himself cross paths with the person that he is interested in. Now, in season four, there is a character who has a more clear type of erotomanic delusions, and that is the paparazzi woman who has delusions that Phoebe and her are best friends and that Phoebe has been sending messages to her to help her. And she actually, because she has been working as a paparazzi person or posing as a paparazzi person, has become aware of Joe and views Joe as a threat because as she's been stalking Phoebe, she has seen Joe around because of course he's stalking everyone in the friend group to try to figure out who the murderer is. And so she sees him as a threat to Phoebe and through her delusional beliefs that Phoebe has been asking for help becomes very threatened when Joe tries to intervene. So that is, you know, the paparazzi lady, I think, is kind of, again, this more like classic or stereotypical presentation of erotomanic delusions where, like, you know, not to be rude, but this is the way that the show portrays her. Like, she's crazy about Phoebe and she'll do like anything to protect Phoebe, even ending up with potentially hurting Phoebe because she's so distressed by her delusion being challenged. And in the scene where she's got Phoebe kind of kidnapped in the hotel, Phoebe realizes very quickly, like, I can't push back against the delusion. It, it makes her upset. So I'm, you know, I kind of have to play along with it. And so that's kind of the, the typical way. Now, when Joe <laughs> interacts with her, it's actually quite an interesting scene because Joe has very similar delusions. I mean, season one, I think, was the most clear example of that where he was so convinced that Beck was in love with him, that she wanted his assistance in changing her life and that, you know, they were, they had this like grand love story. And, you know, it's not so classic in that like Beck wasn't a person of authority, but she was a complete stranger. She walks in the door and Joe becomes so infatuated with her and it like kicks off all of the events of season one. And he has these like kind of delusions that they're going to be together. And it, it doesn't play out so much in season two and three because um, his relationship with love is so different because love is also <laughs> a maniac killer like Joe. So the way that they come together is a little bit different. But his his fascination with Marianne is definitely also a way in which his erotomanic delusions present. In, in her case, she had more authority. She was like his boss at the library. So Joe has these delusions and then he's like encountering this woman who has the same delusions and he ultimately frames her for the murders that he has done, that he himself has done, although he doesn't know that he's done them at the point. So he really, he throws this woman under the bus who is experiencing the same types of mental health conditions that he has. And I think it's such an interesting scene because it really sets up kind of the stereotypes we have about mental health conditions, particularly mental health conditions that include psychotic symptoms like delusions. And the way that which even Joe and everyone else in the room like looks down on this lady, I think is the way in which people with psychotic symptoms get looked down on, whether it's, you know, comments about like people are always homeless because they have schizophrenia or comments about like those people are just crazy, like bag ladies, you know, things like that. Like just the horrible things that we say about people who may be living with psychotic symptoms really 
came to a head in that scene. And ultimately, she ended up serving or facing the consequences for Joe's actions. And so I don't know if the writers, like, meant it to be this way, but it really showed how, like, people with mental illnesses can become, like, the scapegoats for a lot of things. Like, in this case, it's Joe's own personal scapegoat to pin everything on this woman who's living with these delusions. But I think in larger society or larger interactions, oftentimes mental illness is like the scapegoat for school shootings. Mental illness is the scapegoat for uh, substance use problem or, you know, substance use epidemics. It's the scapegoat for homelessness. It becomes a scapegoat for everything and not in a way where it's like, so then we should fix that and give everyone access to mental health treatment. It becomes like, well, you have a personal responsibility to take care of your mental health. So we're not going to do anything to help anyone with mental health issues. We're just going to uh, scapegoat them. So it's not a helpful conversation, but the micro interaction between Joe and this woman, I think just served to really symbolize that, that the mentally ill are there when you need them to blame something on and largely unimportant the rest of the time. And I think I will end this section with that poignant statement. So the last thing that I want to talk about was this article in Scientific American that I was reading. And in this article, they were kind of summarizing some studies that have been done to look at do people with more wealth have ethical, more ethical or less ethical behavior than people with less wealth. And I think it applies in season four to you because that's kind of one of the central themes in the show is that everyone that John, Jonathan, Jonathan (laughs) is interacting with are incredibly wealthy, whether they're from the royal family, whether they're, you know, from rich dynasties or more self-made, all of them have an enormous amount of wealth. And Joe, in his, you know, classic narration, makes a lot of comments about how, like, they don't care about the common people. You know, they're not aware of the plight of the common people. Everyone except for Kate, his love interest in this season, who, you know, she seems to be more down to earth and really cares about the poor and downtrodden. And while it is irritating to agree with Joe, <laughs> his his observations are not entirely unfounded. And that was echoed in this study, one of the studies that was summarized by the Scientific American, where these researchers basically looked at different types of ethical decision making. So would you um, steal valued things from other people? Would you lie during negotiations? Would you cheat to win a prize? Would you say that you would do unethical things at work? Um, All those types of things. Oh, I think even things like breaking the law while driving. For pretty much all of those behaviors, upper class or wealthy people were more likely to do the unethical behavior than those of lower classes. So the more money you had or the higher your social position was, the more likely you were to do something unethical, even down to like making an ethical decision. And they found that one of the things that explained why wealthy people were more likely to be unethical was their attitudes toward greed. So the more favorable one saw greed to be, like the more that was seen to be like a desirable characteristic or something that was like endorsable, you know, okay to do, then that accounted for some of this like unethical tendency in the person who held that belief. 
This might explain the unethical effect because if someone believes that greed is justified, beneficial, or morally defensible, then they're going to be more likely to engage in unethical behaviors in the purpose of greed. So it's kind of like the ends justify the means. If the end is greed, acquiring more resources, acquiring more wealth, and greed is good, then it doesn't matter what you do along the way because you're getting to the good part at the end. Um, they even kind of like cited, you know, in Gordon Gecko saying greed is good, this kind of like out of the 80s sentiment that it's good to want all of the resources, it's good to pursue all of them, that that kind of gives people who are already at the top in terms of wealth this motivation to continue to be greedy, right? To continue to seek to gather more resources. And that those who have the wealth and believe that greed is good are also less likely to report feeling compassion toward other people on a regular basis. So one of the things they did in the study was they asked people, do you agree with a statement like, I notice people who need help, or it's important to take care of people who are vulnerable. Those who had more wealth disagreed with those statements, while those who had less wealth agreed with those statements. And so basically their idea is that like both this idea about greed influences these these like kind of moral worldviews, but also this idea that when people are very wealthy, the more wealth you have, the more sense of independence and freedom that you may have. If you feel free and independent, then you don't need to rely on other people, right? If you have all this money, you don't need other people to support you and take care of you and help you out when things get tough because you have all this money. And the more money you have, the more connections to others that can be severed, or at least, you know, in terms of like being dependent on other people. And the more that you sever those connections, the less likely you are to care, right? To be compassionate. And this, I think, is very clear in season four of You. Because not only do the rich friends or the rich social circle that Joe finds himself in, do they not really care about poor people? Like, they they really don't seem to have even any thoughts about people that are not as wealthy of them. They don't seem to care about each other. They, They don't have very strong relationships. And in fact, one of the episodes that comes kind of like at the the break before the second set had come out um joe was being accused of being the killer out at this like country estate and one of the the members of the group has him like tied up and is going to hunt him in the woods and the rest of the group are just like oh wow that's that's crazy man you should yeah you should definitely kill joe like they don't seem to care I mean, they are really drugged out, so I'll give them that. But, like, there's not a lot of connection to each other. And then even in the aftermath, Joe very pointedly says, like, no one apologized to him for hunting him in the woods. So even those, like, more interpersonal connections, they find it difficult to have compassion for each other. And I would argue that the wealth plays a big role in that. Now, I'm not, you know, it's a show. They're characters. Like, I'm not saying that this influences everything, but Kate's father, um, his character, I think is, draws a lot of inspiration from very wealthy people in our society, like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. And one of the kind of overarching stories is that 
Kate is consistently trying to distance herself from her father because she feels that he is essentially a monster. She feels that he doesn't really care about other people. He will do whatever it takes to make money. And we do see that her father is willing to go to incredible lengths to not only have control over Kate, but to continue to secure his place in society. He even ends up enlisting Joe to have him go murder the real Reese, who is, uh, you know, actually running for mayor and is actually a character in the show. Joe is told to go kill him by Kate's father. And it just so worked out that Joe also had his, you know, hallucination of Reese and ended up killing the real man complete coincidence on the part of Kate's dad. Um, But just this idea of like, yes, this go kill someone for me, you know, because I I don't want to lose political control in London. Go kill someone for me. Or, you know, he would have Kate like followed and had all of her life kind of planned out for her. And through what Kate talks about with her father's business practices, like he just does a lot of stuff that's at its bare minimum is not very compassionate. So I think that his character represents this on a more like larger scale issue, whereas the friend group represents this impact of wealth on empathy and compassion in a more interpersonal way, right? Like the friends have trouble relating to each other, to really like connecting on certain levels because of just their their like distance from each other because of their sheer wealth. And even within the friend group, there's like tiers of who's wealthy or not. There's the whole thing with Phoebe and her fiance and he's like really only wanting to marry her for money. Like there's so I could talk about the show forever. (laughs) There's so much going on. But I think like at the core of it, I just wanted to highlight that this isn't just something that like I think because I'm a little more left in terms of politics, but that we we do have a growing body of research that demonstrates that the more money you have, the harder it is to feel connected to other people. And that's not to say that people shouldn't have access to things like healthcare and housing and food and shelter and water. Like, I'm not talking about like the difference between middle class and working class. We're talking about like people who are billionaires versus people who make $50,000 a year, right? Like that is such an immense gap in terms of wealth and resources, that the person who has a billion dollars is going to find it very difficult to relate to or understand the plight of someone with $50,000 a year, right? Who has to pay for everything themselves and is like scrapping through life. That, That void is just so large. So with that, I think that wraps up my episode on season four of You. Like I said at the beginning, I thought it was a really well done, really different than what we have been seeing in the series. I do hope that they get to do a season five and kind of wrap up what happened to Joe after he and Kate became a murderous power couple. Uh, I think there's probably a lot more story to be told there. But, you know, overall, I do think that it was a pretty good representation of the way that these kind of like disassociative states can look and how someone might be unaware of them. Brought up erotomania again, a classic in the U universe, and gave me an opportunity to talk about some of this research that does demonstrate that wealth and favorable attitudes toward greed make it harder to make ethical decisions, act ethically, and feel compassionate toward other people. And that's 
that maybe has a lot more impact on us than erotomania and DID, but I digress. So I just want to say thank you for listening all the way through and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.